Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Zechariah chapter 6. Over the last three weeks, we've been going through this series of visions that Zechariah was given all on one night. And while we've had to break it up uh, over a number of weeks, these all come one after the other after the other. And they build on one another and they give depth and they mirror the themes of each other. And uh, it is God revealing his plans for his people Israel. Much of that deals with where they are right there, their particular place, their particular cultural moment. But so much of that looks forward to what will come in the end. Uh, He is giving his people a hope for right now, a hope for the difficult times that they face, but he's also driving them forward to let them know that that hope is not just for their generation, but that that hope extends all the way to the end of generations as he has in his hand and he knows in his plans exactly what he is going to do until the end of the age. And last week, we looked at three particular visions. Uh, The first one was a lampstand and olive trees, the reminder that God would see to it that the building that he had called them to finish, that second temple, uh, the one that he commanded their obedience to build, that he would give them what they need to finish it. Uh, It was that particular promise to Zerubbabel and to the people that what God had called them to do, God would strengthen them to do. The idea that uh, the oil that flowed into that lamp was a picture of God's Spirit, that God enables His people to do exactly what He calls them to do, that God does not call people to obedience and then leave them to their own means and their own methods and their own strength to see that it happens, but that God supplies the needs of His people as they seek to worship Him and honor Him in what they do. And then the next two visions were tied together. They were related. The first one was a flying scroll, a giant flying scroll with a curse clearly written on it. The idea that God is going to deal with sin in his land. Because if he is a holy God, and he is, and if he has promised to make the land itself holy, and he has, then there can be no place for sin in that land. And so uh, that first picture of the scroll is the curse that comes on sin. And then the second picture of the woman in the basket was the idea of the sin being removed. You can't have the constant threat of sin coming back and polluting this land when the Messiah rules and reigns over his people. And it's this picture of God doing what he has always promised, that he will remove from his people the, land, the sin from their land. And he'll do it in a very particular day. And today, we're going to look at the final vision that Zechariah has in chapter 6. It's the last of those prophetic pictures uh, that's given in vision form, but then the last half of chapter 6 is going to be another picture, but not a vision, something that actually plays out in time and space, and we'll see that when we get there. So if you're not there already, find your way in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 6. I'm going to read the first few verses to set the stage for that last vision that we'll look at. Zechariah 6, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's Word says. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold... Four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes north toward the north country. The white go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth, and then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to further pictures, further images that give us understanding into your plan not only for your people but for the nations we pray that you would help us to see these things clearly 
Lord, particularly as we come to prophetic sections in our Bibles, we know that there can be disagreement and uh, sometimes even sharp disagreements between believers. Lord, uh, we would pray for humility. We pray that we would seek to understand, and in order to understand, we need you to help us understand. And so along with the psalmist, we pray, Lord, open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Not interesting things, not fascinating things, not new things. But Lord, help us to see truth. And as you reveal to us the truth of who you are, the truth of what you have done, and the truth of what you are doing, I pray that we would be a people that live in light of that. That our hope is based on the consistent promise and the proof of your faithfulness. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're coming into that time of year when all things move toward Christmas. Uh, And if you don't like Christmas songs and Christmas carols, then this is just going to be a rough month and a half or so. Um, But it's not just in what we hear, it's in what we see. Uh, We have things like the Hallmark Channel that just continues to produce holiday classics. And they're classic uh, because they're all the same. Um, (laughs) My wife's not here in this particular service, so I can say that. Um, One movie, 25 different character names. I can tell you how it's going to end. He's going to end up with the girl. It'll be all right. And they'll have a wonderful Christmas together. But uh, some things are classic for a different reason. Some things are classics because they actually have staying power. And around this time of year, I'm sure you'll be exposed to some new rendition of Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, whether it comes from the Muppets or from CGI or from somebody else. Um, They're classics because they tell a familiar story, maybe in a new way, but those themes and images that we're familiar with and Ebenezer Scrooge uh, having that radical transformation over the course of one night and the visions uh, of three ghosts who uh, move him from selfishness in to uh, others-centeredness, and that's the remarkable transformation of one man. And here we are around Christmas time, going through visions given to a man named Zechariah, God's prophet. And I think the danger is that sometimes uh, we read our Bibles, and particularly uh, the story sections or the vision sections, and they become just that, stories in our mind, uh, narratives that happened, but that we start to rate by how interested we are in them. Well, I like this story. I like Noah. I like David and Goliath. I like Abraham because they're interesting because they relate to me, and they just become these, these stories that we open up and read and put down, and if we're not careful in our minds, we start to preface them with once upon a time, and in the end, they all live happily ever after, and they're not real to us anymore. I want us to remember that these aren't just stories but that this is the narrative of how God has interacted with his creation over the course of human history. And things like the visions are important. They make things graphic. They make things understandable. Many of you will remember a large scroll and a basket on stage last week, and that's good. I want you to remember those things, but I don't want you to remember those things and forget what was behind those things. I don't want us to read God's word and get so involved in the details of the pictures that we forget the God behind the pictures, that we forget the purpose behind the pictures. And so as we open up the last of the prophetic pictures, the fourth week that we're going through prophetic pictures, uh, what we're going to see today is the last vision. We're going to see the vision of uh, chariots that I just read through. And then we're going to close today by looking at the last half of chapter 6, which is the picture of a crown. Not a vision of a crown, but a crown that was given as a picture and a promise of something much greater that was yet to come. So let's open up this first uh, half of the chapter with the vision of the chariots. And like we have with all of our visions, let's look first at the illustration, the picture of what's going on to make sure we understand that. 
Zechariah writes, starting in verse 1, that he lifted up his eyes, and behold, four chariots came from between two mountains, and the mountains were made of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. And then if you look down to verse 6, the vision kind of goes on. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. And those are the pieces that make up the overall picture of what Zechariah is seeing. The vision centers around four chariots, each pulled by different colored horses. So uh, the chariot is something we're relatively familiar with. If you've seen a flannel graph at any point in your history or watched any kind of uh, biblical children's entertainment or been exposed to Sunday school coloring pages, you've seen the chariot, the idea that it is a, a kind of the uh, power driven force of the ancient Near Eastern military. It combines mobility, offense, and defense, and they would be a formidable thing. Uh, Zechariah sees chariots, but these chariots are pulled in particular by four different colored horses, uh, red, white, black, and then dappled or spotted. And that's kind of a little bit of a visual picture of what that might have looked like. And these horses are coming out from between two mountains, and these mountains are not normal mountains. These are mountains made of bronze. And they go to different areas. When they go out, they go to specific places. The black and white horses go to the north country. Now, if you're reading in the NIV, it says that the black horses go to the north country, and it says that the white horses go toward the west. Um, This isn't one of those places to get confused and throw away your Bible because somebody made a mistake. A very slight change to one of the letters in one of those words uh, means a different direction. Um, So various translations have taken that to mean either the north the horses go after them toward the north or they go kind of behind them toward the west which is the way of saying toward the west either way i want to comfort you by saying it doesn't matter as far as the interpretation of the vision in the whole or in the pieces so uh, whether they go toward the north or toward the west uh, it doesn't impact the theology of the vision because they all go in verse 7 they're impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go and patrol the earth, so they patrol the earth. The sense is, is although they start in various directions, this patrol of horses goes out and covers the whole earth. And you say, that sounds a little bit familiar, and it should. This vision is very, very closely tied to how the vision's opened. They form bookends to what Zechariah has seen. The very first vision, horsemen among the myrtle trees. You remember that? And they go out, and they have just come back from their patrol of the whole earth. And here, the riders are prepared to go out, and they patrol the whole earth. So that's the picture of the vision. Four chariots, each pulled by a different color horse, coming out from between mountains of bronze, and their work is to go and cover the whole of the earth. Now, when it comes to the explanation of the vision... Again, when it comes to the central meaning, the central figures, the main theme, it's clear. It's almost universally agreed upon. Where people differ is in some of the specifics and the timing. So let's work through it. We'll be as faithful to it as we possibly can. First of all, I want to think through those mountains of bronze. So these chariots, they come out from between two mountains of bronze. And obviously those are not literal physical mountains because mountains, as you might know, are not made of bronze. Here's the challenge. We're not given what that means in the vision itself. We can look at the rest of the visions in Zechariah, and we don't see a close parallel to those mountains of bronze. We can look through the rest of the book of Zechariah, and we don't see a clarification to it. And when that happens, when we have a a piece of the picture, a detail that's given that is obviously intentional because God puts it in his word, and he does not waste words, but we're not given the specific interpretation, we have to choose to move forward in that carefully and very humbly. 
And there is a wide range of opinion on why there are mountains made of bronze, everything from symbolizing uh, the feet of the glorified Christ to heaven and earth to any number of different things. I think uh, the, the place where I would land on this, and I would hold it about this tightly, okay, where I would land is that bronze is often used for places of judgment. If you look at the altar in the tabernacle in the temple, the altar was overlaid with bronze. That was the place where sin was dealt with. If you look at the snake that was lifted up on the pole by Moses that the people would look at and have their, uh, their infection removed from them, that was a bronze instrument. Bronze is often tied to judgment. This whole vision, the theme, is a final judgment. It is a judgment, a war horse, a chariot that goes out and covers the whole earth, which, by the way, kind of finishes the judgment against sin visions that we saw that started last week. And so, again, I would hold loosely to the idea that this is symbolic of judgment that is going out. And that same attitude kind of goes along with the horses. They're four different colors. And the mention of four different colors is obviously intentional. He clearly sees four different colors, but inside the vision, in the interpretation, in the questions that are asked, we don't have what the meaning of the different colors of horses are. Many, many people move forward to Revelation chapter 6, and you see again four colors, four horsemen, and there in John's vision, they are given specific meaning, and so people will tie those to this, where red is war and bloodshed, white is victory and conquering, uh, black is famine, and the dappled are plagues or pestilence, and there might very well be some merit to that. However, I think we have to be careful when we make those connections because sometimes we want to read backwards. We want to read Revelation into this and say, well, Zechariah obviously meant to convey what John meant to convey 500 years later. Remember that John is given visions of the end for the same purpose that Zechariah is, and that is to reveal truth to God's people. And the way that God reveals this truth is often to begin setting the stage, and then later prophecy will give depth and clarity and detail to what has come before. And I think it's probably best to see that Zechariah saw horses of four different colors, and that that was intentional, but that he was not meant to make a specific connection between a meaning for each of those colored horses. That this is a vision of judgment, and God will leave later prophets to fill in the specific details on what's there to come. Because what the chariots are and what they're called to do is very, very clear. All of these horses, regardless of color, are strong. And when he asks what they are, in verse 4, I answered the angel of the Lord who talked with or I, Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And verse 5, the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven. Or, these are the four winds of heaven. Or, these are the four spirits of heaven. The, issue again is that wind, spirits, often are the, the same root word. So it's a translation decision, what word you're going to use. Either way, the sense is that these are four sent from the Lord himself. Spirits, angels, this is the representation of God's power going out to do what it will do. And after they, so they're given this kind of personification, so I think they're likely angelic spirits, after they have gone out to the four winds of the earth, they're doing God's will. Chariots are an instrument of war. It is a clear picture of God's intent to come against the people of the world. 
And after they present themselves before the Lord, the chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. So broadly, they're going to go out to the whole earth, and they go in specific directions to the north and the south. But if we think about, again, the cultural context, that actually makes sense. If you look at the next slide on the map up there, uh, you kind of remember the geography and why it matters. Why send the horses north and south? Because where was Israel consistently pressed and attacked from? The idea is from the north and the south. From the south would come enemies like Egypt up through that southern road. From the north would come Assyria and Babylon. Why do people not come from the west? Because you have that significant natural barrier of the Mediterranean Sea. Massive naval warfare and landing operations were not a thing in the ancient Near East. Israel had a natural protection on the west. Why not the east? Because again, although you can't really see it on a map, there's a vast desert area there that was almost impossible to move a massive army across. And so the threats would come from the north and the south. And now God says that he will move out as the nations have moved in to pressure and persecute and overcome his people. God moves out in his judgment against sin. But the overall picture is not limited to the north and south because look at verse 7. It says, When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. You get the idea of patrolling the earth three times there in a very short span. Three times that we're told that their intention is to cover the whole of the earth. That's why I don't think we need to get bogged down into the details of the horses and the directions. The picture is clear. God is going to universally deal with sin wherever it's found. And then in verse 8, he cried out to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. This we can tie to a specific place. What country has been dealt with in the previous visions? What country was considered the people of the north? If you remember the woman in the basket, that evil was carried away to a very particular place, and that was Babylon. Remember, Babylon has now been intentionally set in the scope of the visions as kind of this foil, this anti-type of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the place where God has chosen Jerusalem, the people that God has chosen. Jerusalem is the place where the Lord will sit and rule and reign in righteousness in the land. And Babylon is now this picture, this place of wickedness, not only where wickedness is cast off to, but where wickedness is exalted and celebrated uh, and kind of sought after. And now God has said that he is going out and that those who have dealt with the north country have set his spirit at ease. The idea that God has dealt with the antagonist of his people, that God has dealt with that place of sin. And again, now, if you move forward and you read toward the book of Revelation and you hear how God deals with Babylon and deals with sin at the end of all things, you start to have an understanding that Zechariah is talking about the same thing. He's anticipating this same day of the Lord when God deals with the sins of the world. It, it, this all points forward to that time, that coming day of the Lord when a bunch of things happen. It's that time when Israel is disciplined for their sin, but when they are purged of their sin, when they move from rebellion to repentance. It's that time when the nations are judged for their sin. It's also that time when the nations are drawn back to God, when those that he conquers then seek him. It's the time when his grace is poured out as they join themselves in worship to Yahweh. And the day of the Lord also has this central figure at the heart of all of it. This Messiah, this anointed one, this anticipated one around which the whole thing revolves. 
And as we move on to the last part of chapter 6, that promised king is who comes into focus. Zechariah now is going to move on and he's going to give us a picture. And it's, it's not a vision in the sense that the other ones have. This is another tangible physical picture, but this one plays out in real time. It's a physical item. In particular, it's a crown. And it's a crown that does something very unique because this crown joins together what has always been separate in the history of God's people. So first of all, let's look at the picture that we are given, and that picks up in verse 9. He says, And the word of the Lord came to me, Take from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So this is related to the visions, but this is not a vision. There's nothing grammatically that links this to what has come before. There is no, then I saw. There's no, I lifted up my eyes and saw. This is distinct. But it is put right where it is very intentionally. This is the capstone of the visions. This is a part of what is drawing them all and binding them all together. This is going to talk about the person who not only guarantees that all of those visions come to pass, but it's the person who is the central figure in all of those visions. So Zechariah is told by God to go and to take silver and gold from three exiles. Apparently, these are men coming back from exile, moving back toward Jerusalem from exile in Babylon. And these men, Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, they have recently arrived from Babylon, and they have apparently brought something of great value. It's likely uh, that the silver and gold was intended as a gift or for use in the rebuilding of the temple. And this is one of those scenes that I would love to see in person. Can you imagine these three men making the journey of several hundred miles to come back from the place of Babylon and captivity, back to the land that God had called them to, that God had given their people? And they've come with their heart's intention, uh, with these valuable gifts to give toward the work. And Zechariah meets them at the house of Josiah, and he says, give me the stuff you brought. Okay? This man is a prophet. Maybe he's the one that's going to take it to the temple. Maybe he's the one that's going to determine how it's used in this newly rebuilt temple that we're working on. But when he takes it, he builds a crown out of it, an ornate gold and silver crown. Can you imagine the confusion? Because this isn't a crown like the word for crown used for high priest. Uh, if you look up there, you can see kind of the, what was called the crown or the turban of the high priest. It has that single gold plate on it that said, holy, set apart to Yahweh. What Zechariah makes is a crown that is fit for a king, a diadem, something complicated, woven together, gold and silver intertwined, a beautiful crown fit for a king. That's not what they would have anticipated that to be used for, but more than that, who would you expect that to sit on the head of? When you make a crown like that, it goes on the head of a king. And there was only one man in that territory of Judah who even sort of maybe might have been fit to be king, and that was the governor Zerubbabel. After all, he was a son of kings. He was in the line of David. And I don't think we get the shock to the system that it would have been when God's prophet places a crown fit for a king 
on the high priest. There's no provision for this under the law. There's no permission for this under the law. In fact, this is unthinkable under the law. Because your kings came from a very particular place. Your kings came from the tribe of Judah, and in particular, the line of David. And that's it. And your priests came from a very particular place. Your high priests came from the tribe of Levi, and in particular, the line of Aaron, and that was it. And it is physically impossible to be both. And if you tried to be both, bad things happened. In Israel's history, in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, a man named Uzziah comes to the throne. And Uzziah rules in Judah for 52 years. And he is a good king. A man who follows after God. A man who strengthens his people. A man who rebuilds the army. A man who follows after God. A man who God greatly blesses. And through him blesses the nation. Strength, prosperity, security. But there's a problem because in his strength, Uzziah begins to grow proud And there comes a point when Uzziah decides that being king is not enough. And Uzziah takes incense. And he crosses the threshold of the temple and he goes into the holy place, that outer court, beyond the outer court, into the temple building itself. Not the holy of holies, but into the holy place where only certain priests were allowed to go when they were doing very specific work. And he takes incense and he intends to burn it on the altar of incense. In other words, he was going to be a king who functioned like a priest. And 80 priests rush into the holy place, and they stand between him and the altar, and they say, this is not going to happen. And as they do that, it says that Uzziah is furious. So you picture this in your mind. The darkness, the lamp-lit inner inner part there of the temple. 80 priests standing against a furious king holding the censer, ready to burn his incense. And one of the lead priests there, Azariah, saying, leave, go. This is not going to do anything good for you. God is not in this. God has not given this to you. And as the king is furious, ready to burn incense on the altar, all of a sudden, the flesh on his forehead begins to grow pale, and then crack, and then sores appear. And in that moment, leprosy overtakes Uzziah. And until the day he dies, he's a leper constant reminder of a good king who tried to take on what God had not given him. And he lives basically as an exile among his own people, separated from the fellowship of God's people, separated from the house of the Lord. And now, everybody knows that story. And now Zechariah has put a crown fit for a king on the head of the priest. A command that God had given him. Two offices that were separate for the entire history of God's people now symbolically joined together in this man. And that picture leads to a wonderful promise. Look at chapter 6, verse 12. This is what Zechariah is supposed to say. Verse 12, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is Branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear royal honor and shall sit as a priest, and he shall sit and rule on his throne, and he shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace 
shall be between them both. Joshua is pictured as a type of this one who's called the branch. We talked about that title a little bit in chapter 3, but it doesn't start in Zechariah. Uh, Branch is this wonderful messianic title that we actually read all the way back in Isaiah. Isaiah tells us that the branch will be glorious. Isaiah says that when the branch comes and rules, that in that day the fruit of the land is going to be the honor of the survivors of Israel. He says that the branch is going to come forth from the stump of Jesse from that ruined line of David that was cut off. We could read Jeremiah, and Jeremiah says that the branch will reign as king, that he'll deal wisely, that he will execute justice and righteousness in the land. Back in chapter 3 of Zechariah, we saw that this one called the branch is going to be called the faithful servant, and that Joshua somehow is a sign of this branch who is coming. And now, as prophecy does, as these pictures do, God gives more depth and detail to what the life and the ministry of this branch is going to be like. We're told that he will branch out from his place. It's the idea of something that comes out from under something else, something that starts small, humble, even insignificant, but then grows into something magnificent. In verse 13, we're told that it's he who shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord. Repeated back to back. Not just repetition, but emphasis in the way that it's placed. Uh, This one is going to be the one that builds the temple. And and that should sit a little odd with us because we've already had a vision that dealt with the temple, haven't we? You remember the vision of the olive trees that we went over last week? And what was the very specific promise of that vision? That Zerubbabel, the one who started the temple, would be the one that laid its final capstone. That God would make Zerubbabel able to build the temple that he had called the people to rebuild. So what are we not talking about? We're not talking about the temple that these people are in the process of rebuilding. But that there is a temple coming that this one called the branch will build. And that breeds a little bit of controversy because the branch is Christ. The branch is the one who is the anointed one who begins in humility but who extends into glory. Christ is the anticipation of the law and the prophets, and there's no doubt, no question about that at all. But Christ, as he calls men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation, builds for himself a spiritual house. The house of the Lord, the temple of God, was the place where God dwelt among his people. And as the Spirit resides in the people of God, Paul says that we, as individuals, are, our bodies are a temple. In Ephesians 2, he says that the church is being built up as a house of God. And that has led many people to say that this prophecy in Zechariah anticipates the building of the church by Jesus Christ. And I'm, it is true that Christ is the branch. There's no argument there. It is true that you and I are rightly called a temple of God, that our bodies are a temple, as Paul says, that the church is the dwelling place of God as the Spirit resides in the people of God in this world. But I think that if you look at the context, not only of Zechariah uh, chapter 6, but of the visions of Zechariah as a whole, the minor prophets as a whole, the Old Testament as a whole, that to spiritualize this promise ignores all of those things and forces something foreign into this. Because if you look at these visions in particular, let's start with the small context. 
they've dealt with physical realities. In the first vision, when the writer said, you've been angry for 70 years, what did he mean? 70 years. When we talked about horns that had come up against Israel, those were not simply spiritual enemies and antagonists. They were real physical foes who had done damage to God's people. And although these are visions, although these are picturesque things that are used to describe it, they are describing physical, tangible realities. A rebuilt Jerusalem that overflows its walls. A place where the presence of God physically dwells. Protection from physical enemies that have come up. The vision promised, to Zechari- to, promised in Zechariah to Zerubbabel that he would finish a physical temple. And if you keep that context and that expectation that is talking about not only real physical judgment against sin, but real physical restoration that happens to a people, I don't see any reason to break with the idea that he means a literal, restored, rebuilt temple. And if you move that out a little bit, Every time Zechariah refers to a temple for the rest of the book, he's going to be referring very clearly to a physical building, a literal place, the one being built or one to come. And if you move back into the prophets as a whole, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Haggai, when they talk about a temple, when they talk about a house of the Lord, they are very clearly referring to a specific place that occupies physical geography. Ezekiel not only describes the temple, he gives physical measurements to a temple. Over and over, when the prophets refer to the coming branch, to the rule of the Messiah, they not only talk about rule and authority, they tie it to a land, to the place. It's, they're all tied very closely together in a way that if you try to parse them up and separate it, and uh, these things that deal with the land are spiritual, but these things uh, that deal with the restored people are real and literal, it, makes confusion that I don't think needs to be there. Now, again, that's not something to divide a church over. But overall, the textual, the contextual, and the theological implications, I think, point to a literal temple that the Messiah will build. Because that temple that he will build is going to serve a very particular function. He shall bear royal honor, and he shall sit and rule on his throne and he shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace will be between them both. The high priest will also be king. And that happens in the context of a particular place that is filled with meaning. There was no king that ever ruled from the temple. There is no king-priest under the law. In fact, the only king-priest that you see in the biblical record is way back in Genesis... As Abraham encounters this one named Melchizedek, whom he gives a tenth portion to, and then that Melchizedek becomes the type, a king-priest, that David picks up on in Psalm 110, that the author of Hebrews then picks up on hundreds of years later. It's this high priest that will also be a king. Those separate offices that were continually filled by faithful sometimes unfaithful men, uh, one day are going to be joined together in the perfect branch. And again, that brings up the question of time. If Christ is the branch, then does he not sit with this authority now? 
Because does Jesus have authority now? Yeah, he said he did. At the end of Matthew, how did he close that out? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, right? Therefore, go and make disciples. Does Christ currently serve as our high priest? Absolutely, he does. Again, the book of Hebrews makes that so very, very clear. And yet, without taking away from the authority of Christ, without taking away from the high priestly ministry of Christ, do these prophecies anticipate something more specific and more literal yet to come? And I think that they do. Because even think back to Psalm 110 that we read at the beginning of our service today. What is he going to do to the kings that oppose them? It says he will shatter kings. Psalm 2, he will rule with a rod of iron and shatter his opponents in that day. Psalm 110, the way it starts, sit in my right hand for how long? Until, until the time of judgment has come. Read through the anticipation of all of these various visions. And you ask the question, has wickedness been banished from the land? Have Judah and Israel been joined together like Ezekiel promises they will be? Have the people that once rejected God come to him and recognize the one that they have pierced? It hasn't happened yet. And so we look forward to the anticipation of all of these things when the rule will come from his dwelling place. And now we see that that dwelling place, that temple of the Lord, the place where Messiah rules from, will be built by the righteous branch, the one who is the king and the priest over his people. And that brings us to the last couple of verses for this chapter, and they bring us back to the point as a whole. Once again, we don't want to get so bogged down in the arguments and the divisions and the discrepancies about what's going to come in the end that we lose the point. Because why do this? Why do it now? Why put a crown on Joshua's head and then almost immediately take it off? Because that's what happens. Look at verse 14. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, which is another way of spelling or naming Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hain, the son of Zephaniah. He puts the crown on Joshua, symbolically joining the two offices, but Joshua doesn't get to keep it. Why? Because he's not the branch. He's the picture of the one that's coming, but he is not the one that's coming. That crown gets removed, and that crown is going to stay in the temple as a consistent, tangible, physical reminder to the people that something greater was coming. They are called to be faithful and obedient. God has called them to rebuild this temple in this place, and he is going to give them the strength to do that. And as they complete that, as they accomplish that work, they're going to see that he was in it. And now, as they put that crown in the temple, it is going to be a consistent reminder that God will be faithful to his every promise, that this temple is not the end of the story. That this temple that they're building, finite and limited as it might be, points to something greater that is yet to come, a time when the king and the priest will rule on the throne from his temple. See, God's going to accomplish not only the work that he told them to do, God is going to accomplish a work that they could not even imagine. Look at verse 15. And those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord. That doesn't happen with this temple that they're building. In fact, they reject the help of the surrounding people who say, we'll come and help build. But they were unclean. They were unfit to participate in that holy work. They said no. That actually caused a lot of the friction between them and the surrounding people. But there's a time coming when not only will the Gentiles join themselves to the Lord, but when the Gentiles, the people from far off, will come and they will give toward his work and his worship. And that doesn't just happen here. 
That is not just a singular promise out of the middle of Zechariah. It's in Isaiah 2. It's in Isaiah 56. It's in Isaiah 60. We'll see it later again in the book of Zechariah itself. And when this happens, when Messiah builds his temple, when the nations come and join in that process, then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. What is the requirement for blessing among God's people? It's obedience. Israel will not experience the blessings of the rule and reign of the branch simply because they're lucky and they were born into the right genetics. They will experience the blessing of restoration as they are obedient. But how does a sinful, wicked, rebellious, stubborn people become an obedient people? That's when you put all these things together. There's a time coming when God removes their sin in a day. There's a time coming when God removes the hearts of stone and puts in a heart of flesh according to all those wonderful new covenant promises that he made to them. There's a time coming when this people will look on the one that they have pierced and they will mourn, they will recognize that the one they rejected is the only one who can save them. That's later in Zechariah, and we'll see that soon. See, the point of this picture is to drive them forward in anticipation but also inward in reflection. To say you long for the day like this, when the branch rules, when righteousness reigns in the land. But here's the question. Are you prepared to live under the righteous rule of the branch? Are you prepared to be righteous as your king will be righteous? Are you willing to humble yourselves in obedience and live like citizens of his kingdom? That's a constant tension in the lives of these people. Let's wrap it up. We're coming into a season of anticipation. It's Advent, and in one sense, as we count down candles, we build that anticipation towards celebrating a specific day, Christmas. And not only all that it has, but all that it looks back on the perfect faithfulness of God who brought his son into the world in the fullness of time. Uh, But in a larger sense, this season should remind us that we are a people who should always live in anticipation. Because of the promises of God, we know that the king is coming again. Because of the perfect faithfulness of God, we know that he will absolutely accomplish everything that he has said that he will do. And as God made promises to these people, what was the point? It was to give them hope in the middle of difficulty, strength in the middle of their trials, and it was to remind them that the power to be obedient never came from them in the first place. As you and I live in anticipation, why do we study these things? Why do we have the wonderful promises that God has made to you and I? Well, because that same God will accomplish those same purposes in us. Reflecting on his promises, living in anticipation of his faithfulness, gives us strength for the difficulties and the trials and the struggles that we face. And there are myriad. But it also reminds us that the strength to obey, the strength to be faithful, the strength not only to endure and to bear up, but the strength to live a life of joy that is pleasing to God, the strength to do that doesn't come from us that God alone gives us everything we need to live lives pleasing to him. And so only two things I want you to reflect on as we leave today. Only two things, two questions. First of all, is he your king? You say, of course he is. I come to church all the time. 
I understand what the Bible says about Jesus. He's my king. But who sets the rules? Who determines the priorities in your life, in your family's life? Who determines what faithfulness looks like? Who determines what you watch, what you listen to, what you say, what you reflect on, where you spend your time and your resources? See, as a culture, we have a problem, and that is that we acknowledge the king, but we want to live in a democracy of one that I'll verbally and theologically acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, but come Monday morning or Sunday afternoon, I'm the one that determines what an obedient life looks like. So that's the question. Is he actually your king? And then it leads to the second question. Is he your high priest? Because with that reminder of the power and the authority and the kingship of Christ comes the reminder of our failure, doesn't it? That often we are disobedient and even rebellious subjects of the king. Even those of us who would seek to be faithful uh, were fallen on our good days. Is that one who is king also your high priest? In other words, one day when you stand before the holy God of creation... What makes you worthy to be in his presence? Jesus Christ, our great high priest, serves as our mediator, our go-between. And he serves that function better than Joshua, better than Aaron. He serves that function perfectly. Because he ever lives, he doesn't die like those other high priests because he has no sin of his own that he has to sacrifice for like those other high priests because he brings an offering that covers sin and cleanses sin once and for all not like those other high priests in fact because he brings the offering of his own blood and clothes us with his own righteousness no other high priest could do that and with those two questions ringing in our minds let's pray lord you have provided for your people. You sustained Israel in the wilderness. You sustained them as a nation. You made wonderful promises for their future. And Lord, we recognize that that same faithful God has promised us remarkable things. Lord, you've promised to finish the good work that you've started in us. Lord, you've promised to provide a way out when we face temptation. You've promised strength in trials. You've promised your presence at all times. And Lord, you've promised forgiveness of sin because of the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we reflect on these things, I pray that we would be joyful, that we would be hopeful, and that we would live lives of anticipation, longing for the return of the King who will one day come for his bride. And so, Lord, even as we anticipate Christmas and the celebration of your birth, let us celebrate the fact that you are coming again. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.